help us. Go to the book of Genesis today, please, if you don't mind. I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 42. And I'm going to take you to the 25th verse this morning. Let me just encourage you again. I already said something to you, but let me just encourage you again, if you can, just to be here tonight and be with us. And I believe the Lord's going to meet with us tonight in a powerful way as well. I'm just anticipating today and then tonight what the Lord wants to do through us and in us and say to us. Genesis chapter 42. I want to pick up in the 25th verse today. And here's what the Bible says. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain and to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. Verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. Verse 27, but as one of them opened his sack to give his donkeys feed at the encampment, he saw his money and there it was in the mouth of his sack. Verse 28, and I'll conclude with this verse. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. There it is in my sack. And their hearts failed them. And they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Verse 25. The last part of that verse says, And to give them provisions for the journey. I'm going to take a few moments today, and I want to preach on that thought, provisions for the journey. Let's pray, and I'll let you be seated. Father, thank you today for the Word. Thank you for the power of your Spirit that we sense at work today in this place. God, open the hearts of these people, the ears of these people today to receive what I feel like you have put on my heart for them. And touch me, Father, to communicate, to articulate the Word with power, with clarity, with boldness. But God... Let it flow through a heart of love today to them, and they receive everything that you have. Thank you for what you're going to do on these altars in the next few moments, and I bless you and I praise you for it. In Jesus' name, the church said amen. God bless you today. Please be seated. Pastor Tony, thank you today for your help. There are the lyrics and the words a songwriter penned one time to a song entitled, If I Knew Then What I Know Now. The first verse says, I started on a journey, responding to a call, to follow where your hand would lead and trust you with it all. I demanded guarantees and promises in store in case my faith would fail. I'd have something I could fall back on. The second verse says, your grace has been sufficient for every passing day. New mercies every morning are mine along the way. I can't wait until tomorrow to see what lies in store. I just regret that from the start, I didn't trust you more. He goes on in that course, he says, if I knew then what I know now, about trusting you, if I knew then what I know now about serving you, 
I never would have doubted or ever been afraid. And I would not have questioned the plans that you have made or even wondered how if I knew then what I know now. It seems to me, as I have read those lyrics and heard the lyrics of that song sung many times, that the songwriter is speaking to and referring to a journey. He speaks, I believe, from a sense of reflection, of looking back over the course of his journey. But he also speaks from a present tense perspective of where he is at that moment. The words of the text that I just read to you reveal the story, part of the story, and part of the journey of a young man by the name of Joseph. Joseph the dreamer who was destined to rule. But Joseph's brothers, as you know, and you're familiar with this Old Testament story, tried to destroy that dream and to keep him from his destiny. And as you follow the pages of Joseph's life and his story and his journey, beginning in Genesis 37, runs all the way through Genesis chapter 50. What appears to be this cruel delay and detour on the way to his destiny is really, was really God's way of preparing him, Brother Turpin, for greatness. As I read his story, it is evident to me that every single step, every single event of Joseph's life was divinely orchestrated by the hand of God. Had it not been for the pit that his brothers threw him in because of their jealousy, and it had not been for the band of Ishmaelite traitors that he was sold to as a Slave. Had it not been for Potiphar's wife and the accusation of rape that she threw at him, that landed him in a prison cell, had it not been for that 13-year process, Pharaoh's palace would have never become a reality. And verse 25 is telling to me. It captured my heart this week. It's one of those verses I've read many times, have seen it, have even underlined it and jotted some things down, but never really preached along the lines that I want to go with today. And it says that Joseph instructed his officers, his men, to give his brothers provisions for the journey. Let me just take you back quickly. At this point, Joseph has risen to second in command in all of Egypt. He has come to check on his brothers, as we know this, as the story unfolds. And he was the favorite of his father, given a coat of many colors. And he goes to check on his brothers at his father's command. They see him coming, and they say, here comes the dreamer. 
Their jealousy leads them to strip him from his coat and to throw him down into a pit. As they're sitting there around him, above that pit, the Bible says, eating a meal and acting like nothing has happened, there is this band of Ishmaelite traders that's traveling by. They pick him up out of the pit and they sell him into slavery. He ends up in a man's house by the name of Potiphar, who was the chief executioner of the day in Egypt. And it was there in his house that Joseph found favor. He rose to prominence. He said he was in charge of everything except Potiphar's food. Potiphar had a wife, and she had a thing for Joseph. The Bible communicates to us and tells us that Joseph was a handsome young man, just a teenage boy. But Potiphar's wife had eyes for him and had a physical desire for him. And many times she propositioned him to come and have sexual relationships with her, and he refused. And finally, one day when there was nobody in the house, she laid hold of his robe, laid hold of his garment once again, asked him to come to bed with her, and he ran out of the house, left his coat in her grasp, and she cried rape. Potiphar takes Joseph. Really, in my opinion, I'm not even sure he completely believed his wife because had he believed her fully, he would have taken Joseph's head off. I think Potiphar knew what kind of woman that he had on his hands. So instead of killing him, he throws him into prison. Just so happens that while he's there in prison, again, he finds favor. He becomes in charge of the entire prison. All the prisoners are under his care. And, and during the process of that time, there are two of Pharaoh's lead men that end up in the same prison cell with Joseph, a butler and a baker. To make a long story short, Joseph had the ability to interpret dreams. And he tells those two men about two separate dreams they had and those dreams indeed do come to pass and when the baker is killed and the butler is restored to his position Joseph says to the butler who is getting ready to get out of jail he was the cupbearer if you will to Pharaoh remember me when you get out and tell Pharaoh about I mean the Bible says that two full years went by and Joseph stayed there in prison until finally one day Pharaoh has these disturbing dreams and says, I need somebody to interpret these dreams. And the butler says, I know a young man. I was in prison with him. He has the ability to tell dreams. And Pharaoh calls for Joseph. The Bible said that he, he shaved, he cleaned himself up, and he came when he stood before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells him these two dreams. And pretty much what they were is that there was a dream that prophesied of seven years of plenty, of abundance that was coming to the land of Egypt, and seven years of famine that would follow that. Joseph interprets those dreams, and Pharaoh elevates him to second in command and says, I want you to be in charge of everything here in Egypt. And during those seven years of plenty, Joseph begins to govern, begins to administrate, begins to prepare the land for the famine that's coming. He is storing up and stocking up grain in the storehouses, preparing for seven years of famine that will not only affect Egypt, but the entire face of the earth, the Bible says. Let me lay some groundwork, and I'll get us to where we're going. And those seven years of abundance indeed do come. Joseph prepares, and there's storehouses that are full of grain. And when the seven years of famine hit, there are people from all over the earth that will come to Egypt to get grain so they can continue to eat and live. It just so happens that J Joseph's father, Jacob, and his 11 brothers, in their minds, Joseph is dead and gone. They have heard nothing from him for probably the last 11 or 12 years. They think he's dead. Jacob hears Joseph's aging father that he's not seen in forever because they assume that he's dead. He hears that there's grain in Egypt. And he sends his oldest sons, ten of them, down to Egypt. The eleventh who was 
Benjamin, the baby of the bunch, stays with the father. They get to Egypt, and they need grain. And guess who they have to go to to ask for grain? They have to go to their brother Joseph. When they get there, the Bible says that Joseph immediately recognized them. But they did not recognize him. The appearance had changed. He had taken on the form and the appearance of, of the Egyptians. So to them, they just think he's some commanding uh, man that's in charge, that's, that's running this deal. And as they come in and he recognizes them, Joseph starts to give them down the road a little bit. You're spies. You've come to search the land out. If you read the account in Genesis 42, what he's really trying to do is press them for information about his father. No, we're not spies. They say we are, we are the sons of one man. His name is Jacob. He lives back in Canaan. He's aging. He's old. We, we have a, a brother named Benjamin, the baby of the bunch. He stayed there and one who was no more. They're talking about Joseph. They're telling Joseph he's dead. Joseph's not dead. And he says to them, I, I want to see this younger brother of yours. You must go back home and bring him here. And I'm going to keep one of you here as prisoner until you bring him back to me. So he's getting ready to send them back to Canaan with the promise they're going to bring Benjamin back for Joseph to see him. And they're keeping one of those other brothers there in prison until they get back and fulfill the promise that they made. Now here, I don't want to preach around that, but here's the scene. Here's where we are. As they prepare to leave, the Bible says that Joseph filled their sack with grain. Then the money that they had paid to Joseph to purchase the grain, he restores all their money back to them. And then there's something telling to me, the Bible says, and I'm going to deviate away from this story in a moment and take you a different place. But it says that he, he gave to them provisions for the journey. One translation says that he gave them supplies for their journey home. Another translation says he gave them rations for the road. Another translation says that he gave to them what they needed for their trip back home. And that 200 mile, 10 day trip from Egypt back to their aging father in Canaan, Jacob, to bring grain so they can have food and they can live on the backs of donkeys, mind you, was quite a journey. The provisions that Joseph had instructed that they have, that word provision there means meat or food. Now just hang with me. We're going to go somewhere, I promise. And that, that meat, that food, those provisions that Joseph gave to them, no doubt provided sustenance and strength for these men on their journey. 200 miles, 10 day long journey. I'm convinced that as they journeyed, they stopped along the way to rest and to eat and to take advantage of the provisions that Joseph had given to them. He understood you can't make that kind of trip and make that kind of journey without food, without something to get you through. And that journey that they were on led them to a destination called Canaan or called home. That journey led to a destination in part because Joseph provided for them everything that they needed to get there safely and successfully. 
That is no secret. And it doesn't take any of us very long to understand that every single one of us in this place, we are on a journey called life. Some of us are a little further along on the journey. And I would say that all of us in this place today are hoping that our journey ends at a place called heaven at some point. At least that's what I'm hoping. I don't know what you're hoping for, but that's what I'm hoping for. And while our eternal destination is of utmost importance, I would rather talk a little more today about the journey than I would the destination. And I'd like to ask you this morning, where do you find yourself right now on your journey? Where has your journey led you to this point? And what do you need while you're on this journey? Because I'm pretty certain today that none of us in here are self-sufficient enough, strong enough, smart enough, or able-bodied enough just to take care of ourselves along the way. We need the help and the provision that only God can give us. So just, I would like for you, if you don't mind today, to permit me for the next few moments to talk about four specific journeys. It may be that you are on one of these journeys right now. It may be that you're on more than one of them. It may be the case that you have already been on one of those journeys, or it may be that at some point you will end up on one of these journeys. Number one. I call it the journey of transition. This is the journey where the winds of change are blowing. This is the journey where things are, are shifting, if you will. This, this is the journey where you understand that life is not what it used to be, and things are changing. My mind goes to Exodus chapter 13, and I'm reminded of the children of Israel who had spent 400 years in Egypt's bondage. Finally, God would raise a man by the name of Moses up, to convince the hard-headed, hard-hearted Pharaoh to let the people of God go. The Bible says in Exodus 13, verses 17 and following, that when Pharaoh had finally decided to let the people go, that God did not take them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was nearer. It was a shorter route. It was a more convenient route. 
But he didn't take them by the way of the land of the Philistines, lest, God said, when they begin to make their way, they will see war that's going on. They'll turn back and they'll head back to Egypt. So the Bible says that he led them by the way of the wilderness. And it tells us that they went up in orderly ranks out of Egypt. The Bible says to us that as they journeyed from Sukkot, they camped at a place called Edom, and there they stayed on the edge of the wilderness. The Bible tells us that God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was never extinguished. And as long as they were moving and as long as they were going where God had instructed them to go, that pillar of cloud by day was there and that pillar of fire by night was there. And it dawned on me as I read that story again this week that Brother Turpin, they find themselves for the first time in 400 years a new territory they'd never been in before. They are in a journey and on a journey of transition and things are changing. The landscape is changing. They're, they're going places they had never gone before. Now listen, on a journey of transition, we need direction from God. And Exodus 14 and 1 speaks loudly to me. It says that the word of God came and spoke to Moses. And he says, tell the children of Israel to get up and not to camp here. They need to move to this certain location. And if you follow Exodus chapter 14, you will find multiple times in that chapter where the Bible says the Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord said to Moses. As they are making their way and hoping to get over into a place called Canaan, they, they come to a Red Sea and they can, they can hear the hoofbeats of the horses of Pharaoh's army. They can hear the wheels of the, of the chariots rolling along. Fear grips them and Moses speaks to them a word from God. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the Lord speaks to Moses and says, take your rod and stretch it out over the Red Sea. And those waters part and they walk across on dry ground. It was a journey of transition. And on a journey of transition, we need direction from God. And there's probably, I would venture to say, people here today that you find yourself in a shifting place of life and things are changing and, the, and you're, you're going places you've never gone before. You can sense and feel the winds of change blowing and if you've ever needed direction, you need it now. I'm convinced that the Word of God will speak and give you clarity and direction on this journey of transition. No matter how you get direction, you must get it. Whether it's through a sermon on a Sunday morning, a Bible passage on a Monday, a song on a Tuesday, or, or however you get it, on a journey of transition, we need direction. Here's the second journey. I call it the journey of separation. And this is the place where relationships are changing. God is moving you on from certain people. And God is moving you on from certain places. 
geographically, now I'm talking literally, moving you on from certain places that you were once connected to. Let me take you to 2 Kings chapter 2. It is the story of Elijah, the prophet of Israel, the spiritual voice of Israel at that time, and an apprentice that followed along with him and became his sidekick and became his associate who he would train and prepare to pass the mantle of leadership to, to be the spiritual voice in Israel, a man by the name of Elisha. The Bible says to us that it, in 2 Kings 2 that when the time came that God would come and would take Elijah to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah would be literally translated or raptured up from this earth by a whirlwind into heaven. That Elisha, the Bible said, went along with him and they walked together. And Elijah looks at Elisha and says, The Lord has sent me on from Gilgal over to Bethel. You stay here while I go on. And Elisha says, I'm not going to have it. As long as the Lord liveth and your soul liveth, I'm not going to leave you. We're together. I'm with you. I love you. I need you. As they journey on from Gilgal to Bethel, Elijah says to him, the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. You stay here. I'm going to go on. And Elisha again says, as the Lord liveth and as your soul liveth, I'm not leaving. Elijah knew what was getting ready to happen, and he wanted to spare his apprentice, his student, as much pain as possible because separation was getting ready to happen. They get on over to Jordan, or Jericho rather. And Elijah looks at Elisha and says, The Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. You stay here while I go on. And Elisha says, As the Lord liveth and as my soul liveth, I'm, I'm not going to leave you. So they walk to the Jordan. Elijah takes his mantle, the Bible says, and he smote the Jordan. The waters parted, and supernaturally they walked across. As they are there, Elijah looks at Elisha and says, What do you want me to do for you before I leave? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit to be upon me. And Elijah says to him, You have asked a very hard thing from me. But nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken away from here, it will be so unto you. But if not... It won't happen. And as they journeyed on, the Bible tells us in verse number 11 of 2 Kings chapter 2 that a chariot of fire appears. And horses of fire appear in verse 11 now. And it said it separated the two of them. And all of a sudden, the Bible says when the two of them were separated, this whirlwind comes and it takes Elijah to heaven. It was Elijah and Enoch, the only two men that never tasted death in Scripture because God came and took them. And when Elisha sees what has happened, the Bible says that he begins to cry out, My father, my father. Do you see the connection? Do you see the relationship here? The chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof, my God, he's gone. 
And the Bible said that Elisha takes his own garments and he tears them into two pieces. That's a sign of sorrow. It's a sign of mourning. I mean, he is grief-stricken. This man that he loved so dearly, he had a, it was a father-son kind of relationship. And now there's been this separation, and he tears his own garments off of him. The Bible said he bends down and he picks up Elijah's mantle. Let me just use my own coat this morning for an illustration. He picks up that mantle that is symbolic of the power and the authority and the touch of God that was upon Elijah's life. See, he tears his garment out of sorrow, but he also tears his garment to make room for something new in his life. Oh, God, help me. I feel the Holy Ghost right here. Because any time that God removes something, he'll always replace it with something new and better than what you had before. I don't know what somebody feels like you have lost in this place today. And there has been a journey of separation you have been on that has maybe taken people out of your life or removed you from some places. And you've walked around in sorrow and in mourning and in grief. God sent your pastor by today to tell you weeping may endure for a night, but there is joy that's coming in the morning. And whatever you've lost, the Holy Ghost says today, I will replace it with something great than what you lost. Oh, hallelujah. My God, I feel the Holy Ghost bearing witness in my soul to somebody today. Raise up your hands and welcome the Holy Spirit. I sense him right here. Sota Rambo And he takes the mantle. The Bible said he strikes the Jordan and says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? He's not worried about Elijah anymore. And he strikes the Jordan. Those waters part. And he walks into a new anointing upon his life. Now watch this. Anytime that you find yourself on a journey of separation where relationships are changing and God is moving you on from people and God is moving you on from places. In a journey of transition, we need direction. But in a journey of separation, we need a demonstration. We need a demonstration of God's power. Brother Turpin, to remind us that I've got this thing. I'm still in control and everything is going to be all right. And when he picked up that mantle and he smoked that Jordan, there was a demonstration of God's power that said to Elisha, I've got you and I'm going to take care of you. I want to tell somebody today that God is waiting to demonstrate his power in your life. You may feel like you're in a season of separation. You've lost something. Something's been taken from you. But I listen, I feel a spirit of a prophet on me today to tell somebody there will be a demonstration of God's power in your life that will serve as a reminder that God has you in the palm of his hand. I'm going to stand right here and preach for a minute. I feel God touching me today. Uh, Hallelujah. Number three. Would you do something for me? I just sense a reverence. I know of the presence of God. You may not, but I do. Would you raise up one or both of your hands and say, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here today. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here today. Number three. There's a journey of transition, a journey of 
Separation is a journey of what I call limitation. James Hanks, this is the place where your faith is being stretched to its limit and it can't be stretched anymore. This is that place where God is testing your faith. And you can feel the strain and the pull and the stretch of your faith. Anybody ever been there before? Let me stay in Kings for a moment, 2 Kings 4. Elisha has now taken the reins of the spiritual leader of Israel. The Bible tells us in the very first verses of 2 Kings 4 that this lady comes to him and says to him, Your servant and my husband is dead. And you know how your servant feared the Lord. I don't have time to go into all of that, but without a doubt, this man, this lady's husband who has died, was one of the sons of the prophets that we read about in Kings, and he was involved in ministry. He was serving with Elisha. In this school of the prophets, he was helping lead. He was helping to set the spiritual temperature, if you will, of Israel. And she said, here's the problem, Elisha. He left an outstanding debt. He wasn't able to pay it off. And now there's a creditor that's coming to take my two sons to be his slaves in order to pay the debt off. Well, that'd be a tough place to be, wouldn't it? And he looks at her and he says, what am I to do for you? And then without hardly taking a breath, if I read the context, right, he says, tell me, what do you have in your house? She says, well, your maidservant. Notice, your maidservant. Do you see the spirit of submission and surrender there? Your maidservant, obviously bigger than this, but has nothing but a jar of oil in her house. That's all. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and borrow vessels from all of your friends and neighbors. Don't borrow just a few, but I want you to borrow many. Do you see Elisha's faith here? She has none. All I have is a jar of oil, but he has all the faith that they need. Sometimes, listen, we find ourselves in weak moments of faith, and God will send somebody along to help your faith. Well, I'm getting revelation today that I didn't even study for. You're getting some freebies today. And you can thank the Lord for it, because I'm not smart enough to do it on the fly. Go borrow vessels. Don't borrow just a few, but borrow many. He said, borrow empty vessels. I want you and your two sons to come in and shut the door behind you. When you do, I want you to take that jar of oil, and I want you to start filling those vessels up. She goes in. They go, and she sends her sons, and they're getting all the vessels they can find. Empty vessels, many vessels. On the instruction of the man of God, she and her two boys go into the house. They shut the door behind them. They start filling those vessels up. When all the vessels are full, she says to her two sons, go get me some more vessels. They said, Mama, there is, there's no more. There's no more vessels. And the Bible says the oil then ceased. See, there's a season of provision that God gave to that family. But 
when the need was met, the oil ceased. Listen, you can't always live all the time on what God has done. you got to have something new that God is doing. Watch. So she goes back to Elisha, and she says, here it is. I've done what you've told me to do. We've filled all the vessels. We don't have any more. Watch what the man of God says. He says, now. See, there, there's always blessing in obedience. He says, go and sell the vessels. Pay off your debt. And that would have been good if he had just stopped there, but he gets even better. And you and your sons live off the rest. See, he's not a God of just enough. God, I feel like dancing right here. He's a God of more than enough. God didn't just give her enough to pay off the debt, but he said, go pay off your debt and you and your boys live off the rest. Watch. In a journey of limitation, when your faith is being stretched, in a journey of transition, you need direction. In a journey of separation, you need determination. But in a journey of limitation, you need determination. What is that, Pastor? That's when you have to keep believing in spite of what you see. That's when your faith has to continue to operate in spite of what you feel. Feel You might look around and see empty vessels and God, I don't know how you're going to do it and all I have is this. And God says, I just need you to believe one more time. I just need you to trust me one more time. I just need you to pray one more time. I need you just to fast one more meal. I need one more hallelujah, one more thank you Jesus, one more praise you God, one more amen. Sometimes you just have to keep on keeping on until God shows up and does what what he said he would do. Here's the last one. It's a journey of transition when you need direction. There's a journey of separation when you need a demonstration. There's a journey of limitation when you need determination. Here's the last one. It's a journey of isolation. And this is the place when you feel all alone. This is the place when you feel abandoned. This is the place when you feel all by yourself. This is the place when you feel like nobody cares and you're walking this thing out all by yourself. This is the place where you've pillowed your head many a nights and tears have dripped down your cheeks as you've gone off to sleep because you feel like nobody's there. I take you to Luke 7 as I close. Pastor Tony, come play softly, please. Luke chapter 7. This is my closing story. Jesus is on his way into a city called Nain. Everybody right here, these are folks just going to the musicians, uh, uh, instruments, that's all they're doing. Just stay right here with me. He's on his way into a city called Nain. And when he gets almost to the city there is this funeral procession 
The Bible says the funeral procession is almost at the gate of the city. Jesus is coming in. The procession is going out. The Bible tells us that it's Luke 7, verses 11 through 17, if you want to look at it for reference later on. The Bible tells us that there is this man being carried on what is essentially was a coffin of those days. It was open. It wasn't a box like anybody. It was, it was almost like a, a cot. It says that he was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Pretty tough place to be. You've already lost your husband, who has been the sole provider of your house. And now your son, who the Bible says was probably somewhere between 30 and 40 years old, wasn't just a little kid, it was a, it was a man who has probably been providing at this point since the husband is gone. There's a funeral procession. Her only son is gone, and her husband is dead too. You talk about feeling all by yourself and feeling alone. It don't get any worse than that. And as this funeral procession is coming out of the city, do you think it's coincidental that as the funeral procession is coming out, Jesus is walking in? And behind this procession is this great crowd of people, which more than likely were, were hired mourners. Back in that day, they would actually pay people to mourn with you. What a terrible job. And if you study that out, and you know, the, in, in the culture of that day, I mean, this wasn't just kind of wiping tears. And I mean, they would weep and they would wail and cry and fall on the ground. It was a big ordeal. Sometimes you just need some folks that will come alongside of you and cry with you every now and then. You just need some folks that will come alongside of you and say, you know what, I'm in this thing with you, and I've got your back, and I'm praying. Sometimes we just need folks that will do that for us. Oh, and Jesus, he's the only one that could get away with stopping a funeral procession. He stopped the thing. Dead in its tracks, no pun intended. He just stopped. And could you imagine? <clears throat> I mean, listen, I, I've lived in small towns all of my life, mostly. In Rocky Mount, twice as small as this town, 4,500 people in the town limits. I mean, when a funeral procession came by, I mean, I'd never seen this because we came from Richmond. I mean, you people like pull over to the side of the road and just stop. And I first got there, I'm thinking, I mean, I all for respect, I mean, I'm a pastor. I deal with a lot of grieving families, but to stop? Could you imagine if I were to get out in the middle of the road as the hearse is coming and kind of put my hand up and stop the whole thing? That'd be a little bit disrespectful. But Jesus stops the procession. And guess who he goes to? He goes to that woman. And he says to her, do not weep. Seriously, Jesus? I mean, really? I mean, her son's being carried out. He's dead. <clears throat> her husband 
died some time ago, and you're going to give her the most ridiculous command. Do not weep. Do not weep. Unless he knew something she didn't know. I feel a preacher on me today. I hadn't felt in a while, and it's feeling good. I need to let you get out of here. I want you to come back tonight. Ah, man. Sometimes the Lord will tell us some things that don't make a lot of sense to us because he knows something that we don't know about the whole thing. Watch. If in a journey of transition you need direction, in a journey of separation you need a demonstration, and in a journey of limitation you need determination, I'm telling you, on a journey of isolation you need a declaration. Not once but twice. Jesus says to her, woman, do not weep. Do not weep. Lord, do you see? He's dead. They've already embalmed him. They've trimmed his hair. They've cut his fingernails. They've put the spices. I mean, they've been through the whole process here now. And you're telling me, do not weep. I'm telling you, do not weep. i got a declaration for you, ma'am. Do not weep. I know something you don't know. And then here's the second declaration he gives. He walks over now, and the Bible said he touched the coffin. You don't touch a coffin in that time. You are rendered ceremonially unclean. It's the most horrific, disgusting thing you could ever do. You don't touch a coffin, and you don't come in contact with a dead corpse. But I wonder if Jesus didn't see the man for what he was, but he knew what he was going to be. No, he's not dead. Yeah, Jesus, he's dead. No, he's, when I touch him, he's not going to be dead anymore. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Woman, do not weep. Young man, get up. And the Bible said he who was, was dead. That, that's past tense, dead. God, I wish I could preach this like I feel it. He who was dead sat up and he started talking. And the Bible says that Jesus came and presented that man to his mother alive. See, for a time, she walked this journey of isolation. Nobody's there. My husband's gone. My son's gone. I'm all alone. Anybody know what it... Listen, I know there's people here today. You can relate to that. Maybe not by the way of death that you feel all alone, but a broken relationship, a betrayal by someone that you love dearly, things that have happened, or maybe death has left you isolated all by yourself, and you know what it feels like to be all alone. Oh, you may have somebody else that lives in the house because your heart's been broken, been betrayed, and you've been hurt, you feel all alone, all by yourself. I'm telling you today, there's a declaration from the Lord on this journey. Stop weeping. Stop weeping. Pastor, you don't know. 
you don't know where I'm at. You don't know what I'm going through. How can you say do not weep? Listen, I can tell you do not weep by faith because I know that the God who loves you and cares about you and loves you more than you could ever imagine has something great for you and his presence is there to fill the void. Do not weep. And here's the second thing he says, young man, I say to you, arise, get up. It's a declaration from the Lord that says you're not by yourself. When you pass us through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and neither will the flame kindle upon you, he said in Isaiah 43 and 2. What did he say through David? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness, he said in Isaiah 41 and 10. And then he would say in Matthew 28 and 20, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. God is with you. With you today. Got your heads for a moment, would you please?